you're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Hey, welcome everyone back to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, engaging topics to help restaurants build their brands, rock their profits, and deliver amazing guest service experiences. I am super excited to be talking to Chef Rachel Wiener, and she's the chef de cuisine at the St. Regis Hotel in Deer Valley. So welcome, Chef. How are you today? Hi, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm so excited. You know, I was in the business for over 20 years, and I've had a number of chefs working for me. And when I heard all about your approach to the kitchen, it was so refreshing. I was so excited to talk to you, and we're going to dive deep and uh, talk about your unique philosophies about running a very, what seems to be a very demanding kitchen with a demanding clientele. So I'm sure there's lots of challenges that we're going to cover. But before we do, Rachel, please tell us how you got into this business. Actually, before you do that, tell us how you first became interested in cooking. Um. Okay, so I actually did not start on the path to becoming a chef until a little bit later in my life. Mm-hmm. I went to Michigan State, and my whole teenage and childhood life, I was convinced that I wanted to be a doctor, and applied to Michigan State, got into their pre-med program, and was on that track for about three years, and then my dad got sick. We spent a lot of time in hospitals with him, and um, we're just in and out of doctor's office, and that really took the wind out of my sails to pursue a career in medicine. No kidding. So I had a bit of a, a quarter life crisis, I yeah. guess, if you will. Yeah, I guess so. And I was riding in the car with my mom and she's like, well, Rachel, you know, it's okay if you don't want to be a doctor, but think about what makes you happy. And the only good answer I had for her in that moment was nothing is making me happy except eating mom. <laughs> okay. That's interesting. So, She's like, okay, well, obviously you can't eat for a living, so reflect on that and dig a little deeper. And as I did, I had the idea to go to culinary school to eat great food and drink great wine and meet great people. And it was a pretty rough idea because obviously there's a lot more that goes into the industry than that. Um, But I packed up all of my stuff in about three weeks and moved down to Florida and went to culinary school. And I have loved every second of it. That is a great, great story. So what an epiphany, right? I mean, (laughs) wow. I mean, you were, you were on this road to perhaps an even more demanding schedule and intense learning experience and applying yourself. And you can't, you had this revelation that said, wow, this doesn't feel right to me anymore. And then you completely pivoted and you went for something that, yeah, I mean, that's amazing. So you went to culinary school, and that was a great experience. What were some of the pivotal learnings, I'd say, that, that you I've, – I've never personally been to culinary school, but what would you say the, the key learnings were that you now apply every day in, in your career as chef de cuisine? So my very first class in culinary school, they call it Foundations One, and I had this ex-Marine – drill sergeant who yeah. they give you them as your first instructor for a reason and 
it's very strict. You yell, yes, chef, no, chef, when asked questions as a group. And if you're not answering together, like in unison, like you want to hear on a line, no points are docked for, from yeah. you, from your grade for the day. Um, and that, right off the bat, taught me a lot about what, what was going to be expected of me when I got out of school and I wanted to rise through the ranks. Right off the bat, it's like you, you got discipline and that, you know, it was a rigid, structured program. And you just applied yourself and threw yourself into this. Yeah. And then I had um, a married couple as instructors who one of them was like, get it done, crank out, crank out results. And the other, the wife was this beautiful, passionate caring woman so they had this really interesting juxtaposition of personalities that worked really well together um and they ended up hiring me actually out of culinary school and I loved working for them I learned so much that was probably one of the more unique turning points for me in culinary school was being exposed to their style and their passion um, and being able to have my first job with them right out of culinary school. So is it immediately obvious when you go through a program like that, whether you've got the right stuff, uh, the talents, or can that talent be developed if you've literally got no cooking experience? If you've just got a dream, I want to become a chef. I mean, does it take a little bit more than just sort of uh, an inspiration, applying yourself and going to culinary school, would you say? Do you need some sort of natural talent to, to be really good at what you do? I think you need a little bit of natural talent. It definitely gives you an upper hand. But when I am looking to hire people at the moment, I hire for attitude because I feel like if they are open and responsive to learning and they want it bad enough, you can mold and mentor them. So I think it's all about frame of mind. You're speaking, yeah, you're speaking my language. I mean, my philosophy running my restaurants was very, very similar in that I never hired for experience per se. I, I Like you just said, I, I hired for approach and attitude, the desire to serve the public, and the rest can be trained. So I totally believe in that. That's great. Um, besides culinary skills, did you also find that, uh, you know, you had a broad um, range of training in costing and inventories and all those other things that go along with running kitchens. Did that come later? What would you say about that? In culinary school, they put you through uh, basic classes. You learn, like, the very, very, very baseline, how to run your food cost, mm -hmm. but not in a really applicable way because there's so many more nuances and factors when you're actually doing it in a restaurant. Sure. Um, and so I started at several of my jobs doing ordering before I got into any of the costing. Because when you do the ordering and you receive them, you go over and you check the prices. Oh, okay. A case of asparagus costs me this much. And you start to build an inventory in your mind of what things cost and how much you're going through and what, what dishes you put it in and where it makes you money. Um, and then it wasn't really until I took the sous chef job 
at the St. Regis that I got really into it. And I was curious because you hear a lot of the executives going around talking about, oh, man, food cost is high, labor cost is high. And I wanted to know if anything I was doing was directly affecting that. So I started digging in deeper and doing a lot of my own research, but then probing my executive chef and the chef de cuisine at the time, like, hey, can you show me these things? Where can I get the resources to figure them out? I think I learned a lot of it just out of curiosity because I wanted to. Uh-huh. Obviously helped me step into the chef de cuisine role. Yeah, it's so interesting to me because, like I said, I had a number of different chefs and many of them were really, really strong with their chef skills in terms of, you know, cooking, putting out delicious food that my customers appreciate. But I had a seasonal operation and it was very important to me that every dish be really, really profitable and that the bottom line was really important. And not every one of those chefs had those skills. And I had, you know, ping ponging food costs because they didn't really know how to cost out a menu. They made lots of mistakes on their costing. They said this is going to be a 28 percent food cost. And it came in at a 35 and then my overall cost went through the roof. I mean, I had those issues and it is really, really important to provide value to the customer and quality to the customer, but still make sure that everything is profitable and that the bottom line is met. And I call that the sweet spot. So, you know, that's a real delicate balance and different positions require varying levels of, of skill sets to do that. It was always really, really important to me. You mentioned that right out of culinary school, you worked for the husband and wife couple. Now, did they own a restaurant or um, some sort of a hospitality operation? And how long did you stay with them? Um, they opened up a restaurant for a high-end country club. Mm-hmm. It was a really unique experience because they only did services on the weekend. So we would go in on Wednesday till Friday morning after classes and just play with different ingredients. It was like an extension of culinary school. They would say, this is what we want to cook. This is what we're thinking. Go through this. Taste it with us. Is there anything that you guys are interested in getting in? We'll, we'll bring those ingredients in and play with them so you can explore different things. Um, it was great. It was a really, um, a really wonderful atmosphere to work in because we learned so much. It was like culinary school on steroids. <laughs> no kidding. So what a natural progression and a real um, boost to your career, right? To go from school into that position. How long were you there? I was only there for about five months. They actually ended up leaving. I see. Um, that restaurant due to some disagreements with management, as often happens in the yes. restaurant industry. Yes. Of course, yes. So what happened next? Then I went to another country club in Florida that I absolutely hated. Um, my first day, I all I did was pick herbs, which is okay. You know, you earn your stripes, and that's fine. And then my second day, all I did was peel fruit, and the chef came over and was looking, watching me peel fruit and kind of turned his nose up and said, let's make sure we have somebody qualified to do this, please. And I just thought to myself, well, if I'm doing something wrong, could you please show me? 
And so for the next four months, I peeled fruit in this kitchen and it was totally fine. I, I can peel fruit so fast now, but it was such a different atmosphere than the first kitchen I was in that it taught me a lot about the type of kitchen I never wanted to run. I love all these learnings. I mean, these key nuggets of, you know, starting out from the ground floor, having the iron chef, you know, behind you. And there's so many stereotypes about that. I know that, you know, reality TV sometimes gives the profession sort of a bad, um, you know, bad stereotype. But I mean, that's all, again, foundational to your philosophy, which we'll get to in a few minutes. So you kept this progression of, of different jobs and you learn new skills along the way. And then you eventually left Florida. I mean, did you go directly there to Utah or what happened uh, after that position that you hated? Um, after that, I took two more positions in Florida that I really liked and I started to learn the line more. Yeah. Um, I was a grill cook for a really long time, which I absolutely love. And then I moved back to Michigan to be closer to my family. Um, I spent about a year there in northern Michigan at a restaurant. So Traverse City, Michigan has a unique food scene, but they're challenged in the same way as resort towns where it's very seasonal. So for the summer, you're slammed busy, and then the rest of the year is really nothing. So I did that for about a year, and then I took a job in Savannah, Georgia. <laughs> and after Savannah, then I ended up in Utah. So how did you find these? I mean, is it a word-of-mouth thing? I mean, how do chefs or sous chefs or, you know, people in your profession find better and better gigs, or at least ones that you think will be appealing to you? I mean, how did you find the place in Georgia? I found that one online. So in Florida, yeah. I started working for Starwood. Mm -hmm. oh, um, okay. And I left the company when I went back to Michigan. And I knew that I liked the company and um, sort of the network they provide. Right. So I got back on the Starwood website and I applied for a bunch of different jobs. And Savannah was the one that wanted me and fit what I was looking for the most. And Savannah is a beautiful city. I loved it there. It was really, really cool. So can you pretty much tell with the people that potentially you'll be working with that you think that you'll thrive in that environment? Is it a personality thing? Is it the design of the kitchen? Is it all those things? I mean, you must look at a lot of different variables saying, well, this is going to be a good fit for me or not. I think I have a better read on that now. Yeah. If you would have asked me, when I was going to Savannah, if I could tell, I would have said no. Um, but now, I think it's more about looking at the way the kitchen is kept. You can tell a lot about a place by not just how organized it is, but how people care for the equipment. I think it's a respect thing. It is. When you... Take the extra time to clean properly and organize properly. It's out of love and respect for, for your coworkers and your kitchen and your industry. Um, and then from talking to 
the different crews, not so much the chef that's you want to go work for. That's important because you want to get along with your boss, but I think talking to the crew gives you a better idea of what type of place it is and where you fit in. I would agree with you. Okay, so let's dive in. So again, what originally struck me where I really wanted to talk to you was your refreshing approach to running a kitchen. You have a unique approach to hospitality. It's all about the camaraderie of the team and the ultimate guest experience. And you you, you seem to me that you're able to get the most out of your staff in a highly demanding situation. Let's talk all about that. Give me your whole, you know, how do you, how do you gain respect in your kitchen? How do you build that team? Um, these are key nuggets that I think our audience would love to hear from you. So building respect for me in this kitchen, it's definitely a process, no matter where you go. Even if you walk in with the best resume ever to any kitchen as the chef de cuisine, respect is never given in a kitchen. And I think that's really important to realize right off the bat. Because we've had people walk in who think, well, because of my stature, my position, they will automatically respect me. And those people have failed in the kitchen I work in. So I'm lucky because before I was the chef de cuisine, I was the sous chef. And before I was the sous chef, I was a supervisor. So I've worked with these people side by side, developing my management uh, style and my technical skills. And they've seen how hard that I've worked. And even as the chef, if they're struggling, I'm not going to stand at the pass and just yell at them because you don't get good work from the people you need if you don't support them. I think that's the biggest thing for me is I know I thrive when I feel supported. So I want all of my crew to feel the same for me. I have their back, I'm there with them, and I'm not going to let them go down. So now you're talking about leading by example clearly, which is a really powerful um, formula for running a strong operation, whether it's any type of business, a restaurant, a kitchen, what have you. I've always followed that. I think that's tremendous. Do you give your team uh, much autonomy in how they do things if you have confidence in their abilities, or do you sort of uh, oversee all the different details that go into all the different dishes. Take me through that process. Um, When I write and launch a menu, I plan everything out to the smallest detail. But then when menu launch comes, I give them the overview and packets with recipes two days before so that they can look them over, ask questions. And then I go through every single station and every single dish and I cook them with the people who work those stations and the people who have been with me for a long time and that I trust and have a lot of respect for. And we talk about them. We say, Hey, you know, I think this would look better or maybe the flavors in this need a tiny adjustment when we eat it all together. And I do this prior to, but I also do it again with them. And I am 100% receptive to all of their input. There are times where I don't agree and I won't end up using the, the suggestions they make. But I, I think people are more invested when 
it's a collaboration and they feel like they have input and I want their feedback. That's what makes us better is by listening to each other and having more voices. A lot of the people in my kitchen have years and years of really great experience and a lot of knowledge. And I would be a bad leader and kind of foolish if I didn't listen to what they had to say. Tremendous. I also believe, and this is my opinion, of course, based on what I know about Deer Valley, but you have a sophisticated and perhaps somewhat demanding clientele. You're talking worldly travelers, foodies, the wealthy, that sort of thing. What would you say are some of your biggest challenges in serving these guests? That they don't want to eat the menus that we write. <laughs> really? Take- you, I mean, for the most yeah. part, I would say 95% of the people who come in love the menu, want to order off of it. Mm-hmm. But because you have people from all over the world, a lot of them just have very particular tastes and they know what they like. And when they don't see it on the menu they don't hesitate to ask for it, even in the middle of 300 dinner covers. And how do you deal with that? And at what point, uh, I hate to use the word no, but do you ever say no? Or do you literally try to accommodate these people because it's a reflection of the hotel and the, and the place you're working? I mean, how do you handle that? What do you do? I think there's a really fine line that you have to walk between going above and beyond and doing everything in your power to accommodate the guest without compromising the integrity of your food or the service in the restaurant. Mm -hmm. So if the request is too over the top, it's something we just can't feasibly do. I like to try and come up with a solution along the same lines as what they're thinking. Yes. And say, here's what I know I can execute properly. Because if you, you know, if, if you are really hell bent on this particular thing, I'm not going to feel comfortable with what I'm serving you because I can't do it to the best of my ability. And I think a lot of times the guests are really receptive to that. They see how hard we're trying to accommodate them sure. and they appreciate that and will compromise with us. So who brings you that request? Is it a maitre d'? Is it a general manager? How do you hear about it? And then all of a sudden you make an on-the-fly decision. Can I do this or what can I do? Um, How long does it take you to make that critical decision before, you know, the guest ultimately gets their answer? Yes, we'll accommodate that or we can do this. You know, how does that process work? Usually it's brought to us by a server or a concierge or uh, we have butlers at the St. Regis. So a lot of times the butlers will receive those requests. Mm -hmm. Um, And now I have, I know what's in the kitchen and what's not at this point because I'm a little bit crazy about knowing where everything is. Um. So I can make a decision fairly quickly, like two minutes. But a lot of times it just takes me looking at the line and the business that's happening at the time to decide if I can leave to go make that happen 
If I can spare those five minutes to go run around gathering ingredients, if I can leave the pass, if the, the different stations are holding pace okay. Um, so it all, it's all just dependent on how busy we are, really. Okay. So some would say you're in a high-stress profession. Um, do you consider it stressful? Yes. You do. <laughs> but, okay, so you thrive on that, but you turn it into a positive because um, you, you seem to maintain this whole lighthearted attitude when you're in the thick of things. You got the team, and it's like, yes, there is an end of the tunnel coming. We're having fun. It's stressful, but it's also kind of intensely satisfying when you're in the midst of that stress. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I think anybody who has been part of a team that they really love, especially on a line, that feeling when you get through a really busy service, but knowing that you all did it together and you did a really great job is amazing. It's such a great feeling. It's really unique. And we go around and we give each other high fives and it's a really special thing. I think it certainly is. Sports, maybe? Yeah, no, no, no. That I totally get that analogy, and you're kind of bringing me back to when I owned restaurants, and I'm kind of missing it now because I had a family of staff, and that's exactly how everyone felt. But you know, similarly to your situation, the front of house and the back of the house work really well together, right? Because it's about mutual teamwork and respect. We do. I would say. You know, every now and then there are sharp words between the front and the back of the house. Yeah. And I think that's okay because the whole foundation is built on respect. And we know we understand that the guests are demanding and the kitchen is busy. And in the heat of the moment, people get upset sometimes. And it's not personal. And we keep... We all have the same goal in mind is to serve the guests the best we can and to provide a great product and a great service. So I think when you keep that in mind and you have that foundation, when there happen to be those sporadic brief moments of conflict, um, it's very easy to laugh it off four minutes later. I think that builds a stronger team as well. That's a key point. Yeah. Do you implement any specific staff recognition and rewards programs in your kitchen? I mean, how do you motivate your staff besides their their self-motivated, you know, approach to their jobs? Is there anything formal that you do or informal? Um, how do you recognize your people? So we have a hotel-wide program that you can nominate People, it's kind of like employee of the month. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do that. We do reviews every year. Um, and that's all kind of like the corporate mandated sure. stuff. Mm-hmm. We like to do a lot of one-on-ones and um, like lineups. So I do lineups with the whole staff or just the AM, just the PM just the prep and we talk about things we're doing well. We talk about things we need to improve on, um, challenges. I let them give me feedback, anything they need. And then we recognize the people who go above and beyond. So if something specific happens, we always make sure we address it 
as a group so that everybody knows. Um, and then we buy, we all use tweezers in mm-hmm. our plating. And JB Prince has this line of like a hundred color tweezers. <laughs> so we buy different color tweezers for people and hand them out. We buy coon spoons and hand them out. Um, every now and then after service, I'll order in Chinese food for everybody. And we all sit down as a group and have a glass of wine, have some food and just hang out with each other. In your um, career as a chef, are there any moments that you remember that were like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening, but the show must go on. And somehow you got through it and the guests never had any idea that something really crazy had happened that was unexpected and you had to just shift gears and like make it happen. Anything stand out like that? I mean, it's a crazy business, right? The unexpected is around the next corner. I like to say I've had lots of experiences like that in my own you know, situations, but I'm just curious if, uh, any, any, you know, stories like that jump out at you. Yeah, there's two. So the first one I was working in Michigan yeah. and we had this lead cook on saute at the time and he was coming to, it was like his second to last day. We knew he was gone. But he was having mail-it-in syndrome. Like, he was just over it. He was done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, the, you know those nights where the ticket machine just doesn't stop throwing up? And they're on the floor. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. So we're all just, like, dripping sweat in yeah. the weeds. What can you go on, man? Let's get something out. And he goes, you know what? I've had enough of this. And he throws his pans down, and he takes all of the tickets off the rail. This is, oh like... Gosh. Two arm spans of yeah, mine. Yeah, yeah, Takes them all off and Kidding. throws them in the garbage and walks out the door. And we just look at it like everything stopped in the kitchen. We don't have tickets. We don't know what to do. I was like, somebody go get the owner. We're lost. We don't know. We don't know what we're going to do. So the owner comes back into the restaurant and starts picking tickets out of the garbage can yeah, basically uh, uh-huh. and reading them. He's like, I don't care what order it comes in. Yeah. As I find it in the garbage, this is what you're going to put I'm out. Expedite. <laughs> That's crazy. And we ended up serving everybody. I think a couple tables waited a little longer than they yeah, would have liked, yeah, but, but, but really besides that, no one really knew <laughs> that that huge bump happened. Yeah. That could have been a disaster. Oh, my gosh. What was the it, other story? It felt like a disaster. Yeah, right? um, in Savannah, we had a gas outage in the middle of breakfast. Mm-hmm. So all of my burners went out. I couldn't cook eggs. I was like, my flat top's not working. What's happening? Yes. So I call engineering, and they race upstairs, and they're like, there's no gas in the building. I'm like, well... Even have to go tell the people in the restaurant they can't have breakfast. And in runs my director of food and beverage in his suit and tie with camping burners. And he's like throwing off his jacket on the line. He's like, I'm going to help you flip omelets, Rachel. Let's awesome. go. So we set up like six camping burners and we're flipping omelets and pancakes and anything and everything in tiny little pans on camping burners. And it was actually a lot of fun. Oh, no kidding. I love it. Well, you know what? I was, 
I got to say that your gas story is very similar to something that I did, that I made the mistake. I mean, we had a seasonal restaurant at a ski resort back in Maine, and I forgot to call the gas company and put us back on automatic delivery. So on one very busy Saturday night, yep, all our burners went out too. And I ran out to the propane tanks and I saw the gauges on zero on everything. And, you know, you're in the middle of cooking something and then all of a sudden you lose your heat and your ability to cook and you've got a full restaurant. And that was my fault. So fortunately, you know, our gas company was about 20 minutes down the road. We called in an emergency delivery. They came, you know, within 20 minutes, gave us gas and we started cooking again. And yes, the guests waited a little bit longer. And yes, we had to throw some food out and start from scratch again. But it's like, yeah, that was my fault. My, you know, my problem. But the show must go on and it always does. Hey, thanks for sharing that. So... What advice, Rachel, would you give to other prospective chefs that are working their way up after, you know, your particular path to where you are today, whether you go to cooking school, whether you apprentice um, in many, many restaurants? I mean, do you have specific advice that will help people succeed? It's really easy to focus on the negative a lot of times, especially if you're in a job where you feel like you're stagnating. Yes or you don't like the atmosphere, you don't necessarily get along with the chef or the staff. Um, But I've tried really hard everywhere I've gone to stick it out for a set amount of time. And whatever you deem is the right amount of time is okay. For me, it's been a year. Um, But you can, there's value in every experience you have even if it's what not to do. And if you work for a chef who you see has a terrible leadership style, you can still learn from that individual and walk away from that experience with, um, with positivity and taking away lessons. So I think that's what's, that's what's helped me the most in my career is exposure to good and bad is important. If you're only exposed to good things, you may not know how to handle or deal with the bad when they come your way. That's very good advice. Let's get a little light. Do you, in your spare time, uh, watch any restaurant reality shows? What do you think of them in general? (laughs) Um, I like some of them. I like Chopped. Yeah. Um, I like Top Chef. Sometimes I like Hell's Kitchen just for pure entertainment value. I do as well. But I can only take it in small doses. Um, There was a BBC show called Whites. It's not a reality show. It was Mm -hmm. a sitcom. Okay, yeah. But it is hilarious. It parodies... Um, sort of just chefs' lives in general and the silly things we do and stupid questions front of house asks. And it's really, really good. If you ever find it, I highly recommend it. I'm going to look for that because I, I do find that entertaining and, and that's awesome. Do you, uh, again, I'm, let's talk about your days off and, and they are few and far between, but do you dine the competition 
in the Park City area? Do you go out and, you know, sort of critique and see what, you know, the other hotel restaurants are offering or any of the other restaurants on Main Street, perhaps? I mean, just to stay on top of your game and just to get a sense of what the variety is. So Park City is kind of strange. Everywhere else in the country that I've worked, there's kind of a community of chefs and F&B people. Yes. That's pretty tight-knit. And in Park City, it's not really the case. So since I've been the chef, I've been trying to reach out to other local chefs and invite them up and say, hey, let's do an exchange if you want to send some of your cooks up. We would love to host them. They can sit at the counter. We have a big open kitchen. Um, Can I send some of my people down? Because it's just good exposure. It's good to see what's out there. And it gives you more of a sense of community. I think it's better when you collaborate. I want to invite local chefs up in the summer to do like a pig roast cook-off at the St. Regis for fun because people like that and it's fun for us. Yeah, totally. So we, I go out and I eat, but it's never like, ooh, I'm scoping the competition. (laughs) It's just for fun to say hi to the people that I like. Okay, that's a good approach as well. Do you have a particular dish that you not only love to prepare, but you also love to eat? Ooh, I get asked this question a lot, and it's tough to answer. (laughs) Um, I think there's so much passion and emotion in cooking that a lot of it has to do on my my mood. When I'm at home, I like to cook um, Indian food. My mom is Indian, and it's kind of like my comfort food. Okay. So I'm feeling down or sluggish or... Um, just like I need a little rejuvenation, I like to cook two things that my grandma used to make me as a little girl. And it's like soul soothing to cook them and go through the process and have all of those good memories and then eat them. I cook her lentils and her chicken curry. (laughs) Are those influences, um, finding their way into your menus just as a traditional thing? Do you, do you do that from time to time? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, whenever I can incorporate, Indian cuisine has taught me a lot about spice blending, which is applicable to everything that we do. Um, So just, I find myself leaning towards different blends of spices that are more prominent in Indian cuisine a lot of times. Mm -hmm. When I am designing dishes, because I think it puts something unique in there. There aren't a lot of people in Park City using those flavors. And it's not a knock at them. It's just what I really like, is, and that's why I choose to use it. Would you say that those influences are super hot and super spicy, or they kind of tame in comparison? I asked that question because I went to graduate school with two guys that were native from India and they had the diet of, Oh my God, if it wasn't on fire, barbed wire, they couldn't eat it. I mean, I love spicy food, but I can't eat too much of it. (laughs) Sure. So 
I think a little bit of heat enhances dishes, but if you take it too far, you tend to lose the nuanced flavors of how much work you've put into blending all of these different spices. So mine's not super hot. People can always add, we make a hot condiment at the J&G, so people can always add that if they want to knock it up a notch. Got it. We've covered a lot of different things. It's been a really fun and exciting conversation with you, Rachel. Is there anything that you would like to discuss about cooking, about culinary skills, about, you know, the different nuances of cuisines? Anything we didn't touch on that you'd like to talk about? I think that that there are a lot of really interesting trends happening right now in the industry. And... Back, sort of back to the community of of chefs, and I think what you're doing with your podcast is really cool and unique, and it, it's helping to foster that inclusive environment, which I think the industry is getting away from. I think is what I'm getting at. Oh, that's interesting. Where where are you based out of, actually? Well, yeah, um, I spent 20 years building restaurants at a ski resort in Maine. And then about three years ago, my wife said, you know what? (laughs) We're out of here. We're going to sell everything and we're just going to get an RV and travel across the country and see where we end up. And so we're now in Sun Valley, Idaho. So yeah, it was, it was quite a 360 degree pivot for me because, you know, the restaurant was my identity for, like I said, 20 plus years. It was a really, really super, super exciting time for me. I learned, well, you don't know my story, but I started my first restaurant with absolutely no restaurant experience, either in the management side, the cooking side, any of that. And I just started a restaurant and be careful for what you wish for. It actually came true and I succeeded. And then that led to several other restaurants and I don't own them anymore. But, you know, talk about a learning curve, talk about a cool business and, you know, what you talked about, just building that team and that culture of hospitality and the family and That's the part I miss the most. So I love what you just said about how it's sort of helping to bring people together. I hope that, you know, my listeners get that sense because I really try to offer value, whether it's new technology, whether it's someone like yourself who has has great insights to share about how you run an operation effectively. It's an advantage, you know, to an operator. You know, that's really what I'm trying to do. Just bring the industry together in so many different ways and give service value and financial value and just all sorts of stuff. So I think that's really cool that you, that you mentioned that. Thank you. Do you um, have any celebrity chefs, Rachel, that inspire you that you sort of follow? And what do you think about the whole celebrity chef trend where, you know, there's restaurants in Las Vegas and in Monte Carlo and all over the world run by chefs And do you believe that they're able to maintain their specific stamp on each of those restaurants, even though they can't physically be in all those locations at once? What's your take on that? Ooh, that's an interesting question because I work for a celebrity chef. (laughs) Oh, tell me about that. I think some manage it better than others. Um, The smart ones realize that they can't be everywhere and they need a huge amount of resources to effectively maintain standards all over the world. Um, so John George's, I think did a really great job. There's this company called CCHG who manages a lot of his restaurants, um, including the one I work for. 
And I think it's just about making sure you feel comfortable with the people you put in charge there. So if there's definitely been times in the history of this, the restaurant I work at where I don't think we have upheld the integrity of the brand to the best of our abilities. Interesting. And since I've taken over as a chef, that's been one of my main goals is to get back there because it'd be doing a disservice to my training and all the resources we're given from the John George's brand if we didn't. Um, I think the celebrity chef thing is kind of cool. It's kind of a trip, though, like... There are some chefs that are massive, massive celebrities. And yeah, they 100% deserve to be recognized for their talent. But it's, the celebrity chef is a pretty new thing, comparatively. And um, it's, it's weird how much people crave that. So I've had... Uh, like a couple articles published on me <laughs> and people have come up and asked for my autograph and I'm like, what is going on? It's, awesome. it's strange. It's really strange. Yeah, that's great. And I think it's great for a lot of people who want that. I'm still trying to sort out if that's what I want though. Like at this point, I just, I just want to cook good food. <laughs> Fantastic. Where do you think your career is going to lead you in the future? From here, I will most likely go to a bigger pond. So a bigger city, a bigger food scene, California, Chicago, New York. Um, and I think that's what will take my learning to the next level. Not that I haven't learned and progressed here tremendously, but... Um, it's just limited in Utah because of seasonality and of course. how many restaurants there are really pushing the envelope. In big cities, you have people who are constantly on the cutting edge and really pushing, pushing cuisine forward. Awesome. Well, it's been a super pleasure having you today, Rachel. That was fantastic. Um, we learned so much from you, and I'm appreciative of you being a guest. Um, that was Chef de Cuisine, Rachel of the Deer Valley St. Regis in Park City, Utah. Um, that is the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. I'm hoping that your take on this was whether you're an owner, a manager, or a staff person. It's really all about the attitude, the approach that you take to any job, and building a culture of hospitality, clearly evident in how Chef Rachel runs her kitchen. That was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. If you really want to dial in your restaurant, Head on over to restaurantrockstarsacademy.com. Thanks for listening to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. And while you're there, download a copy of the book, Rock Your Restaurant. It's a game changer. See you next time.